Apologies to John Lennon. Um, it seems that his 1980 song, Imagine, has not taken hold of the American popular imagination, perhaps to the degree that he would have hoped it would have. Pew Research 2014 did a survey of 34, almost 35,000 different Americans to find out what their views were on religion and other topics. And it seemed that of all adults, 72% believe in heaven and 58% believe in hell. And when we look at what the Christians believe, 85% believe in heaven and 70% believe in hell. So while we might like to imagine that we are all one and there is no heaven above or no hell below, it does not seem that has taken root. This is our last talk in our series on confronting Christianity. And I apologize, I'm going to try and speak in a normal voice today. I have been sick and there is no way that I can uh, do my normal preaching voice, which apparently is some sort of projection as though I'm speaking to 10,000 people <laughs> without a microphone. I started listening, I listened to a couple of my last sermons and I was just like, oh my goodness, I'm like a Shakes doing Shakespeare in the park to you guys. I have a microphone, Sean. Calm down. So I'm going to try. I can't promise I won't get fired up at some point, but I'm going to try and speak in a normal voice so that my voice will make it for two services. This week, our topic is why would a loving God send people to hell? Yes, this is an odd message to have right in the middle of Advent season. Perhaps not the most jolly of Christmas topics that we could talk about. One of the things that we have also looked at is, so when we, we talk about hell, Barna did some research on this. This is a little bit more dated. It's 2003. I couldn't find any more updated. But when we talk about hell, a lot of different ideas come into our mind, and I want to talk about those today. Um, you know, 39% of Christians that were researched by Barna believe that, there was, that hell is really just an eternal separation from the presence of God. 32% believed in hell as an actual place of torment and suffering where people's souls go after death. 13% believe hell is just a symbol of an unknown bad outcome after death. And 16% weren't sure or they just don't believe in it at all. Now, here's the point that I want to make on this. What we believe about it has no bearing on whether or not it is true or false. Um, we do not get to pick what the eternal outcomes look like. What is the landscape, the geography of heaven, and the landscape and geography of hell? What it looks like, who goes there, and why? What we need to do is look at the Bible and try and get some sort of understanding, both from uh, the people who have wrestled with these ideas over a long period of time, but also on what the text says. And so I, I want to look at that, but before we look at that, I want to look at some historic views on this idea of hell. And there are four historic views on this. 
And hell seems to have evolved as a concept. The underworld or the afterlife has evolved as a concept. And I will be talking primarily about sort of Middle Eastern to Western civilization when we talk about this. I won't hit on beliefs in Africa, India, China, sort of Asian or Eastern beliefs on this. I'm going to primarily focus on Western beliefs. Hell was thought of as a neutral place. It evolved into this idea of a moral place. There was this idea of a porous hell or afterlife that evolved, and then this idea of a useful hell began to do. So let's look at these very quickly. The first, the oldest story that we have written down is this story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a Mesopotamian story. It's about two to 3,000 years old. Gilgamesh was actually a king of a Mesopotamian city called Uruk. And in the Epic of Gilgamesh, it is fascinating what this story is about. Gilgamesh had a friend who died, and he, he was uh, devastated by the death of his dear friend. And he felt like it was very unjust, and he didn't want to experience this kind of death. So Gilgamesh determined in his heart that he was going to discover the secrets of immortality. And so he traveled literally to the ends of the earth. He traveled down into the underworld itself. And the underworld, as conceived by these Mesopotamians two and 3,000 B.C., was a neutral place. They referred to them as the shades, the, the people who lived there. It was just literally think of it as a warehouse of the souls. Now, what Gilgamesh, at the end of all of his journeys, just came back and said, you know what, there, there, it is impossible for me to achieve this immortality. Basically, what I have to do is enjoy the things that life has to offer. We move forward, and, and that sort of belief of uh, eternity and the afterlife as a, a neutral place, a warehouse of the souls, existed in Mesopotamia up even into the time of the Persian um, Empire. We see evolving from this idea into an idea of a moral afterlife, especially in Egypt. This is actually a, um, uh, a funerary uh, papyrus that would be put inside of a sarcophagus. And what, this, what the writing on here is doing is it is actually listing out the, um, the resume, the life resume of this person that is going into the underworld. So that Mott right here, this, this uh, goddess who actually had eagle's wings and would look at the, the person's life. And so all of this writing is to Mott, and it says stuff like, I was a good person, I was an honorable person, I never stole, I never did this, I never did these things. There's like 40 some odd different things listed on this. And what would happen is the Egyptian believed that Mott would actually take the heart out of the person. So when they entombed people, they would take out all of their organs except for the heart because the heart was going to be placed on the scales. And the conscience of this person was going to be weighed, and it was going to be weighed against a feather that Mott would pluck from her wing. And if your conscience weighed more than a feather, then you had this alligator-headed creature waiting to devour you, your heart and your entire body. And so this idea of a moral sort of sense that what we did in life mattered. Also over this time, what we see is as people moved out into sort of the nether regions, we see these sort of uh, individual sort of superstitions, tribal sort of ideas about life, and we see that the afterlife got very what we would call porous. 
meaning people believed that, that the spirits from the afterlife could actually come and, and walk around on earth today. And there were lots of reasons why people would believe that, that folks would come back. Some would come back for love, right? The, the love of their life, and they had left them too early, and they just wanted to be near them. Lest you laugh at that, we, we also have things like the movie Ghost, Right where we believe things like this. Sometimes it was to warn people in this life. This is actually Jacob Marley from A Christmas Carol. Charles Dickens' story Right begins with Jacob Marley actually coming and saying, see these chains that I wear, Ebenezer? See them in the, every wrong thing, every selfish thing that I did is, hung, is a link in this chain hanging around my life, warning them. Sometimes they would come back to wreak vengeance and other things. But you see this porousness that, that many people actually believe today. I heard somebody just recently say that they believed that, their, that, that a, a mother or a, a sister was with them. They could really sense their presence around them, this idea of a porous death. Then finally, over time, in the Greco-Roman world, what they began to realize is, is what people believed about the afterlife could actually be useful in this life. And you see a lot of these stories. You see the early stories of Homer. You actually see Odysseus, right? He goes into the underworld. And when he goes into the underworld, the people that he engages, who engage with him, some of them actually come up and say, hey, make sure that I get buried. Burial was a big deal. Make sure I get buried, because if I'm not buried, I'm actually not going to be able to be ferried over the river Styx and get into the underworld and, and have sort of my, my peace in the life ever after. Other people would come forward, and then it, they would actually talk about the nobility of the death. They wouldn't ask about where the person went. They would ask about how did this person die, and dying an honorable death was actually a big deal. And the writers began to realize if people believed that what they did in this life determined how they spent the afterlife, it could actually be useful to control the quality of a person's life in this day and age and actually create a more peaceful society. And if you're an empire who is going and conquering lands from Spain all the way over to the Middle East, and you're trying to keep peace and order, having this sort of story and this capture the imagination of people was very useful. It was very useful in this Greco and Roman world when they wanted peace to be everywhere. So why is this important? Why start here other than just it's interesting tales to tell about what people have believed over time? I think it's important for two reasons. Actually, one reason, one having to do with the Old Testament and the other having to do with the New Testament. It is important to understand that these worlds were what Abram, when he was Abram, was called out of. He was called out of a Mesopotamian world. When Moses left growing up inside Pharaoh's home and went out into the wilderness and then came and brought his people out. The Lord was calling them out of these places and these cultures and these belief systems. And the revelation that was given to these people over time was correcting beliefs of those cultures. Jesus came into a day and age when the Roman Empire was uh, the, the most powerful empire on earth. Paul, when he went out on his missionary journeys, went to Greek places uh, uh, and Roman places, places that had these thoughts and beliefs. 
And so the things that we see in the Scripture are not written neutrally. There isn't a time when the Holy Spirit came down and just unfolded a complete and thorough systematic theology to everybody about everything that you could ever think and believe about anything. These, God came and spoke in specific points in time in history to specific people. And these things that we see captured, they came out of places and worldviews. And so it's important for us to know and understand the history and the context where these things happen. We could literally spend weeks talking about this topic, trying to be exhaustive on all of it. But I'm going to give you some real pinnacle verses that end up showing up in our current beliefs and views about hell specifically. And I'm going to take a few from the Old Testament and a few from the New Testament, and then we're going to look at what are sort of four current beliefs that Christians have about specifically hell. In the Old Testament, the book, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, tend to deal primarily with life here on earth. And this makes sense because what God was doing is he was bringing forth a new people and establishing a people on earth, establishing a law and a way for them to live so literally they could survive so that they would not be exterminated because his ultimate plan, as we know, was for Jesus to come through this people. And so what you see in the books of the law in Deuteronomy have a lot to do with life here on earth now. And in fact, there is very little, if any, mention of an afterlife and what would come. In fact, in Deuteronomy 28, the, the blessings have a lot to do with life here on earth. If you follow these laws, you are going to be blessed and it will go well for you. If you do not follow these laws that it says here in 28, which are written in this book, and do not revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, the Lord will also bring on you every kind of sickness and disaster not recorded in this book of the law until you are destroyed. And so the sin brought about a literal death, the destruction of people. And we see this over in Psalm 73. This is this great psalm where the psalmist was looking around on the earth and thinking about the books of the law and thinking about what God had taught and lamenting over the fact that the wicked didn't seem to be getting what was promised. There was this, I, he was looking and wrestling through, this seems unjust. The wicked just seem to be getting more and more and more blessing. Until sort of at the end, about two-thirds of the way through, a lot like what happens with Job, but there was this moment where I believe the Holy Spirit sort of caught this person up short and said, wait a second, wait a second, the Lord is my portion and my reward. And he looked and said, you know what? Those who are far from you will, in fact, perish. You have destroyed all of those who are unfaithful to you, and Lord, you are my reward in this life. We also see in the Psalms that this word starts to show up, this word sheol, for there is no mention of you in death, right? This is actually a psalmist saying, look, when, when I die and I'm down in this underworld, how am I going to give you thanks, right? I need to live. I need you to protect me. I need you to save me so that I can praise your name. And we see this word Sheol show up many times in the Old Testament. And it gets interpreted as the grave. Sometimes it gets interpreted as death or the pit. When the Greek version of the Old Testament was written, what we call the Septuagint, which literally means the 70 because 70 different scribes uh, did the work on it, the word Sheol gets translated as Hades. 
And the word Hades is the, is the word that showed up in the Greco-Roman world. There were actually believed to be three gods. There was Zeus that was on Olympus. There was Poseidon over the sea. And, Sadie, and Hades ruled the underworld. Now, he was not a devil. It was literally just a person that was one of these three gods who all fought together and put all the titans in Tartarus, if you remember any of that sense. But Hades was just the underworld. And so we see the psalmist again wrestling with this idea of death and looking and saying, man, how am I going to praise you? I need to be kept alive, Lord. And this idea of Sheol again, pit, grave, death was this idea that came about. And we don't see this idea of judgment or vengeance coming up in the scriptures until the times of the prophets. And here's the important thing to know about the prophets. There's sort of three classes of prophets. They're the prophets before the, the exile period, right? So we know that the kingdom from David built up in Jerusalem, and then the kingdom split apart into the north and the south, and they just couldn't keep up with the Lord, and the Lord brought judgment on them. So the Persians came in, and then the Babylonians, and took them off to exile. We know that part, right? Seventy years in exile. There were prophets who were saying before the destruction, the Lord's going to judge us. There were prophets during the time of the exile, Daniel being a big one, who were saying, we have to hold faithful, the Lord is going to send us back. And then there were prophets after the return from the exile, when they were reestablishing the kingdom. It gets called the second temple period because they rebuilt the temple during that time. And we see in Psalm again this th thing of Sheol. Sheol, Sheol isn't outside of God's domain, right? In, in the Psalms, we see this in 139. He's saying, where can I go from your presence? I can go to the heights, or I can literally go to the grave, and you're there, Lord. So the Lord is over all. And we see in Isaiah 66, again, one of the first scriptures talking about this judgment. Isaiah is talking about that there's going to be some mark that's going to come upon the people of God, and they're going to be allowed to come into the city. And the people who are outside of the city are actually going to be destroyed. And, and after this great battle happens, the people who had the mark will come out of this city and they will look and they will see all of the dead bodies of those who rebelled against the Lord. And the worms that eat them will not die and the fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So we start to see this idea of there will be a people who will not be following after the Lord, and there will be some sort of judgment that is going to come on them. And then in the book of Daniel, which is important because Daniel talks about this Son of Man, one who was like the Son of Man. And Jesus, actually, as we went through Matthew, we saw over and over again, he actually picked up these verses and picked up this identity that Daniel began to establish. And Daniel in chapter 12, it, it's sort of in his prophetic chapters here at the end where he's talking about things that are to come. And he's saying there will be a time when your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. And the multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. There will be this sense of resurrection of all people who have become asleep. And some will be awakened to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. And this is one of the first times in the Old Testament that we start to get this idea of a double resurrection and a double judgment, that there is something that is coming for both the wicked and there is something that is coming for both the righteous. Moves us into the New Testament.
We get a new word in the New Testament. Do not be, Jesus is saying in Matthew 10, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body because they, they can't kill the soul. Rather, you should be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And this word hell here is the word Gehenna. Jesus would have said this word and everybody would have known exactly what he meant. Gehenna is literally the translation of the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. We hear about the Valley of Ben-Hinnom one of the first times in the book of Kings. In the book of Kings, outside of what was called the Potsherd Gate, there was this valley. And in this valley, up there was a, there was a high place on it. It was called Topheth. And on Topheth, Ahaz, who was one of the kings, actually allowed for the worship of Molech, one of the gods of the people around them. And one of the parts of the worship of Molech was the sacrificing of your own children. Right, so these are some of the things that are going on in this time in the Old Testament, right? The sacrificing of children. God didn't allow for that. This is what, like, you didn't need to guess, what do I have to sacrifice for the God of the Israelites? You knew because he outlined it in the law. You knew exactly what it took to satisfy this God, to make him happy with you so that you could live a blessed life. But Ahaz began to follow the practices of the other gods and left this and began to sacrifice on here. And when Josiah came in and began sort of uh, a, a new king, when he came in and was uh, uh, writing, bringing about reformations, one of the things he did is he went onto that high place and he defiled it. He actually tore down these places of Molech. And what they would do is these pl this place was such a disgusting and detestable place that it's where they would throw all of their garbage. And in order to get their garbage to burn, they would toss sulfur out on it and light it. And so that if you've ever smelled somebody do anything with sulfur, it stinks. And the sulfur is the, actually the stuff that you put on the end of matches to help them light. So they would light this sulfur and it would be burning. If you were, one of, uh, if you were an, an enemy or a criminal and they didn't want to give you an honorable burial, your body would be tossed out into this valley. This valley was known as the place where all of the trash went, where the people who lived an ignoble life went, and the fires and the stink burned all the time. And this is the picture that Jesus uses over and over. The writer of the Gospels show Jesus talking about this place, this valley, where it, there is just a burn and a stink and a stench over and over and over. It was the valley of Gehenna. Jesus says it in, the, in Mark, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into that stinking sulfuric pit that burns where all the ignoble people are, Gehenna. Where, and you'll see he picks up even this Isaiah verse, the worm that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. We also see it over in Matthew 25 at the end of the sheep and goats. Jesus said, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We get this sort of double sense here that there is eternal reward and eternal punishment. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And here we can see the rich man back here eating. All of his servants are making him food. And here is this poor man, Lazarus, that it says who sat out of his gates. And he was poor, and he just would hope for a scrap that fell off the table, and the dogs licked his sores. And when they went into the afterlife, 
Lazarus was ushered into the bosom of Abraham, which would literally be sitting on his lap, which is a, it's a, a, um, a, a Jewish sort of picture idea of being ushered into the presence of the patriarchs and the fathers. And that the rich man went down into a place where it was hot and he could receive no relief for his suffering. And so he's looking up and he's saying, please, please, Lord, just, I just need Lazarus to put one drop of water so that I could, my tongue just to be quenched. And he's like, I can't do it. There's a chasm that separates us. And he said, well, then send somebody back to warn my, my, uh, my, my brothers so that they don't end up here like me. They live just like me. And he says, you know what? They have Moses and the prophets. And he said, they, they wouldn't believe if my own son sort of went out. And Jesus is making the point here that, that there is a judgment that is coming, and they're not even going to believe when the Son of Man, they're not even going to believe when I come along. And Jesus tells this parable about this sort of separation. John picks this up. John talks a little bit differently about it. Here's the famous verse, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish. Right? This idea of perishing and destruction that we see in lots of verses, but should have eternal life. Paul picks up on this idea of destruction. Paul uses the word Hades one time. He mostly talks about death. He talks here in Thessalonians, which was one of his first books to be written, saying that nobody knows the hour and the day when all of this judgment is coming. It's going to come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. He talks a lot about death becoming imp impotent, that the work that Jesus did actually swallows up death and the grave. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gave us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul also picks up again on the judgment, and this idea of judgment so that each of us may receive what is due to us for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And behind all of this is in certain little places is a second story, right? What we've been talking about is sort of what has God revealed to man about what is to come in the life after. And there's another story that's sort of happening, almost this meta story that shows up. It starts in a garden where a, a snake sort of comes and tempts two people. We see it again show up in Genesis 6 where it talks about the sons of God coming down and, and sleeping with the, the daughters of men and these giants, these sort of defiled creatures. There are extra-biblical Jewish uh, texts like uh, Enoch that go into great detail about this, about these angels who came down and taught technologies and taught sexual perversion to the daughters and the sons of men. And those were being judged. They get referenced again in Second Peter. They get referenced a little bit in Jude, that these angels were locked up in this place. And in fact, we even see Jesus pick up on this theme that there is sort of two, two battles happening. There's this spiritual battle of this angel who tried to ascend and was judged and tossed down. There were some that were sort of seemed to be locked away in this place for a long period of time. Jesus, even where he's talking about the sheep and the goats, picks up on this. He says to the ones on his left who are the goats, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There is this sense that these rebellious creatures who live sort of in the realm of God have been judged, and this place of eternal fire 
is actually prepared for this supernatural sort of creatures that went against and rebelled against God. And we see it again in Revelation 20. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into a lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So not only is there this sense of that we have this sort of life and that what we do in this life matters in eternity, there is also this judgment for this second sort of realm, this spiritual realm that's happening. And they seem to be coming to a point at some time where they meet and their fates are aligned. And out of all of this, all of these scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, again, we just looked very high level and went very quickly at some of them. I wanted to refer to some of them. There are four views that have come in the, through the historical church, which people might consider to be sort of orthodox off of this. First being the traditional, the traditional view being a literal reading of everything that we just went over. That there is coming a time, that there is a sovereign God who is so much greater, so much more powerful, so much more holy, that we do not even begin to understand him. And when we look at us versus this God, our depravity is so total and utter, and we are in such a wretched state that unless we take his substitution, unless we take the atonement of Jesus on our lives, what we deserve isn't just separation from this God. What we deserve is the same fate as Satan. Eternal, conscious torment and fire. And from Augustine forward, lots of discussions about how can a non-corporeal body, literally in the city of God, there is great discussion, sort of a first systematic theology written by Augustine, discussion about the fires and how do the fires burn and how does this whole thing work. And we see this view going all the way up through the Middle Ages. We see the Last Judgment. Michelangelo's painting reflects this. If you read Dante's Inferno, it definitely reflects this view of eternal judgment. There's a second view called a metaphoric view, which tends to be more how evangelicals tend to think or talk about it today. Billy Graham would have been in this uh, uh, space. It's actually quotes from Calvin talking about perhaps some of the fire is metaphoric and not literal. Perhaps it is a separation. C.S. Lewis writes about this to a great deal in The Great Divorce and others of his writings where he talks about living eternally in the condition unregenerate of our own souls, fading away. Our anger going on forever and ever is its own sort of torment. Being separated from the being that gives and sustains all life, all light, all goodness, all hope, all joy. Separation for that is sort of an existential and literal kind of hell. Perhaps it isn't fire or the torments that we read about in Dante specifically. But it is something that you would not want to have exist. Next is a purgatorial view. You'd have to go to sort of uh, scriptures like 2 Maccabees, which we don't have in our Bible, but if you're Catholic, you tend to have. And the idea of this, where this came from and, and, and through tradition, is who of us is perfect at our death? The process of sanctification is never completed. 
And perhaps there is a place where the sanctification process can happen after this life. Now what happens is, if you extend beyond this life into this process of ongoing sanctification, and Dante talks about it in Purgatorio like climbing up this mountain, perhaps there is a little bit of pain and suffering that you might experience after this life to perfect, to refine. And this is where this doctrine comes from. The problem of this becomes people in this life praying for those in the afterlife, spending time praying for this, praying to the saints for them to help this person, help them get through this, giving money to actually forgive sins in this life, in the next, which is where all of the indulgences and the other sort of egregious things that were happening inside of the church that Luther and Calvin and the other reformers were rebelling against. And then finally, there is a conditional view that would say, you know what, this idea of the human soul being eternal, just because we are created doesn't mean we are eternal. The only one that is eternal is God. In fact, Greek thought would say that our soul, the human soul, is eternal just by the very act of creating it. And the only way that we get eternal life is by belief in Jesus. And the metaphor would be something like, think of an inheritance. If I don't get the inheritance, it doesn't mean that I get punishment. It just means that I don't get the inheritance. And so there is this idea, and we saw many verses that talk about a destruction, that some will go on to eternal life and some to destruction. And so there's a conditional view that says only those who believe only those who take sort of the, the sacrifice of Jesus as the defense of their life will inherit eter eternal life is the gift. And those who don't believe, perhaps there is a period of punishment, but then they will simply be extinguished and be like lights that go out. What I'm not up here to do is convince you how to believe on this. I'd been reading about this for weeks, and in the middle of all this, I got this crud, this sort of like flu or whatever it is that's going around, and it was actually good to feel horrible in the midst of studying hell because I realized I do not want any part of any separation from the goodness of God for any period or point in time in my life. There's something about I get sick and suddenly I just start confessing every sin that ever happened to me. I'm on, as though I'm on my deathbed. Like, is this judgment of God on me? I'm the worst sick person ever. And Shelly, who's sweet and lovely, has no bedside manner. She has an enormous pain threshold and no tolerance for my whining at all. And so I have been in my own purgatorial condition for the past two weeks. My heart and conscience are as light as a feather. Thank you, Mott. Now, here's my takeaways. There is a deadline in life. There is a deadline in life. I looked up this word deadline. First use of it was around the time of the Civil War, 1864. It was literally a physical line that was drawn around a prison. If a prisoner went outside of that line, they got shot. Your life has a deadline, and I would encourage you to believe that it is your own death that is the deadline. And at that point in time, 
you will have, have established a plan of defense for your life. Hebrews tells us it is appointed once for a person to die and then to face judgment. There is a point in time coming, and there will be a verdict on your life. And what the Bible teaches us is that who you are, the character of your life, and what you did, the actions of your life, both get measured. And as for me, because I believe the one judging is Jesus, and because He has established a defense for my life, and He is the judge, I'm taking His defense. I'm saying, Jesus, I want your righteousness, not mine. I don't have any righteousness in and of myself. And I'm saying, Holy Spirit, come inside of me, transform me so that more of my actions look like gold and silver and precious stone and less like wood and hay and stubble. Because if there is, all of my actions are going to be tested by fire, I want that burning period to be as short as possible. I want it to be quick and just over. And I want to enter into this eternal life and presence with Jesus. I don't want to be extinguished. I don't want to be separated. I don't want there to be any eternal punishment and torment. God forbid that that exists. Does that make sense? Don't, I, I would not gamble on my beliefs on this. If someone came up to me and asked me, hey, Sean, I've got a gay uncle. Do you think he's going to hell? Right? This is a question that we could be asked. This is a question that you may have been asked. I will tell you very practically, I would first work to discern what is this person really asking me. You don't owe anyone an answer to a question that is trying to further alienate them from God. If they are asking you this question, you might say something like, wow, you believe in God. Tell me more about that. You might say, oh, are you asking me, do I believe in eternal conscious torment? Let's unpack this idea. Where did you get this idea from? You could say, are you asking me, do I believe that there are certain sins that send people to hell and other sins that don't send people to hell? Because the Bible teaches us even calling someone stupid in traffic puts us in danger of that. Or you could just say to them, let me ask you a question first. Hitler. Does Hitler deserve to just be extinguished? To just, he's died and he is no more. Does Hitler deserve to actually stand before a righteous God and give an account for all of his life? Does Hitler deserve to be punished in the afterlife for the things that he did? Because here's the thing, we need there to be a punishment in the afterlife for this life to have any justice. Not all justice is done on this earth. If there is no punishment for the evil that is done to people, how can we possibly live? 
How could we possibly not become cynical to the point of being nihilistic, to the point of just killing ourselves? Because why would we want to live in a universe where there is not going to be any justice ever poured out? And the good news is that all of the justice was poured out on Jesus. So no matter what has happened in your life, you have the opportunity before then to actually call on the name, to believe in the name of Jesus, to believe that what he said and what he did is enough, more than enough, for you to spend eternity there with God forever. And let me give you a couple of things to do. It's the end of the year. It's the end of a decade. It is a great time for doing some evaluation. Let me give you five different verses real quickly that are fantastic for self-evaluation. The first is the great commandment. How are we? I've been doing this with myself. I've been saying I turned 50 this year, right, halfway through my adult life. I'm saying, Lord, the next 25 years, how have I done on this first 25 years of being adult? How am I going to, what do I want the next 25 years of my life to be? I want to be able to stand before you and give an account that is good. On the great commandment, love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love my neighbor the way I love myself. How am I doing on this? The Great Commission, going into all the world and making students of Jesus and teaching them. How am I doing on this? I used to pray this verse over my kids when they were growing up. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. That was always my prayer for my kids. How am I doing, Lord? How am I doing growing in wisdom? How am I doing in, in, with my physical caring for this temple of yours? How am I doing in my relationships, both with you, Lord, and with others? How about the parable of the talents, Lord? Am I taking everything that you gave me, my time on this earth and all of the capital, whether it is financial, whether it is uh, 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 intellectual, whether it is human capital, whatever you've given me, am I putting it all at risk to build your kingdom? And finally, Lord, you didn't just die for the poor and the needy and the least of these. You identified with them. You took their place to such a degree that you were saying, for all of the rest of human life on earth, when you see one of the least of these, Sean, you are looking at me. And how you respond to them is a response to me. Sean, how are you doing at that? There is a deadline. Do not wait till the deadline to evaluate the quality of your life now. I would urge all of us to take this time. That can be arbitrary at the end of the year, at the end of a decade, and do some self-examination and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal and ask the Holy Spirit to empower so that when our lives are weighed, that the Lord finds us living for him, having built his kingdom and not our own. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. Won't you stand? Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you that you are not just enough, you are more than enough. And that your death on the cross 
paid for everything. Lord, it says you descended into hell and you led captives out of there. This picture of all the people that lived before who were sort of in this state of limbo got to see this Messiah, got to see and understand that there was one that they had hoped for is finally here. And Jesus, at this time, when we celebrate your first coming, prepare our hearts, Lord, for your second coming. Because it says it will happen, you'll come like a thief in the night. Let none of us get caught unaware. Let none of us get caught unexpected. And Holy Spirit, come into our hearts and empower us to love the Lord the way the Lord deserves to be loved to care for and love ourselves so that we have the capacity to love and serve one another. In Jesus' name, amen.